You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Well, what a mess. Just when we thought that COVID-19 was pretty much under control here in Australia, just when the borders are reopening and life's getting back to some sort of normality, it all starts up again. We're still the lucky country, though. While numbers are increasing here, they're still at manageable levels, not like the way things are going overseas. For most of the rest of the world, they're experiencing a third and even in some cases a fourth wave of the virus, and it's running out of control. It doesn't take much, though, for all those ugly emotions to begin to rage in you, though, does it? The fear, the anger, the confusion, anxiety, frustration, rebellion. From a human perspective, these reactions are understandable. But from a Christian perspective, none of them are attractive qualities in us, are they? These sorts of reactions should be warning signs for us believers that we've taken our eye off the prize, off the goal. We've forgotten who is in control and we've forgotten who we should be looking to and who we should be trusting in crazy times. Now, I don't want to dwell on bad news. We've had enough of that for a lifetime these last 12 months. What I would much rather do is help you to fix your eyes on the future. And what the Bible tells us is in store for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ. There's one specific verse I want us to focus on this morning. Before I get to it, I want you to open your Bibles, if you brought them, to the book of Revelation. We'll begin by doing a flyover of each chapter. We all know Revelation is difficult to understand and all sorts of strange theories about the last days and the end have been concocted out of this book. I have no intention of trying to explain to you what it all means and how it ties in with current world events because, frankly, I have no idea. And neither does anyone else, I suspect. Does Revelation talk about things that have already happened in the past? Or is it talking about things that are going to happen sometime in the future? Or is it talking about things that happened throughout human history or at least Christian history? Things that are happening around us as we speak. Who knows for sure? But as you read through, it's easy to imagine that some of John's visions are being played out before our eyes right now. And if that's so, that may mean that the end is near. If you've got a Bible with headings for the various sections, you might find it a little bit easier to follow along. But I'm sure you all know enough about Revelation to understand uh, what I'm sharing with you. After announcing that he's been given an amazing glimpse behind the curtains of heaven, John the Apostle begins to write this vision down in what's known as apocalyptic language. That is language that's full of imagery and strange pictures. To this day, no one can be entirely sure of what is meant by all the imagery, hence all the different interpretations of it. If anyone tells you they've got it all figured out, run away. At best, they're kidding themselves. At worst, they're laying the foundation for a cult. Anyway, in chapters 1 to 3, Jesus addresses seven churches that are located in what is modern-day Turkey. 
is full of encouragements and warnings to these churches. The rest of the book deals with Christ defending his church, his people, and destroying his enemies. And along the way, there are lots of bizarre creatures, lots of environmental disasters, lots of plagues, and lots of slaughter. Anyone who thinks the New Testament is light and easy and nice to read hasn't read Revelation. Chapter 4 is where the weirdness begins in earnest. Hold on to your seats. Hollywood has never produced a movie like this. If it were a movie on the IMAX screen, the surround sound, it would so assault your senses and so overwhelm you that you would stumble out the door traumatised for life. It begins when John gets a peek through an open door into heaven where he sees someone seated on a throne and lightning bolts coming from that throne. And around that throne, it tells us in Revelation 4.4, there are 24 other thrones occupied by 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads who fall down in worship before the one on the main throne. And there are strange living creatures full of eyes with six wings each who regularly give glory to God. Chapter 5 reveals a scroll with seven seals on it, but no one is found worthy to open it until they find a lion who looks like a lamb, slain but standing, and who has seven horns and seven eyes. That's strange enough in itself, but a lion that looks like a lamb, and even though it's slain, it is still standing. How do you picture something like that? This lion slash lamb is worshipped by the elders and the living creatures and the angels, numbering in the millions. But when he opens a scroll in chapter 6, it contains nothing but misery for humanity. The first seal releases a white horse whose rider goes forth conquering. The next seal releases a red horse whose rider causes people to go to war with each other and slay each other. Then follows a black horse whose rider carries scales of judgment. And finally, a pale horse ridden by death himself with Hades following behind. His task is to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. The opening of the fifth seal reveals vast numbers of those who have been martyred for their faith, crying out for judgment and vengeance on their murderers. When the sixth seal is opened, there's a great earthquake and the sun goes black and the moon turns blood red. And stars fall from their place. The sky vanishes and all the inhabitants of the earth cower in fear before the Lamb and his mighty wrath. Chapter 7 tells us of the sealing of 144,000 from all tribes of Israel and the multitudes who have gone through the great tribulation. Chapter 7 verse 14 tells us they now live in peace before the throne of God. And serve God day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. 
The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The seventh seal isn't opened until chapter 8 and its opening triggers, triggers absolute silence in heaven for about half an hour. Seven angels are then given seven trumpets and another angel is given a container of incense which he fills with burning coals to pour out on the earth, causing thunder and lightning and earthquakes. The seven angels blow their trumpets one by one and with each trumpet blast, there is more misery on the earth. Hail and fire mixed with blood rain down. A third of the earth and a third of the trees burn up. That's the first trumpet blast. Then a burning mountain is thrown into the sea, causing it to turn to blood. Everything in the sea dies and a third of the ships are destroyed. A great star falls from heaven, turning a third of the rivers and springs poisonous and causing many more deaths. When the fourth angel blows his trumpet, a third of the sun is struck and the third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. And an eagle flies overhead crying, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Woe indeed, just when we're begging for relief, there's worse to come. As strange as these visions are, as difficult to understand, we understand enough to instinctively recoil in horror at the misery of it all. But still the trumpets blow. The fifth angel in chapter 9 brings even greater misery with the blast of his trumpet. He releases locusts from a bottomless pit, strange-looking locusts in appearance the locusts are like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They're given power to torment, but not to kill. Anyone who hasn't been sealed by a mark of God on their foreheads. That's important for Christians to take notice of. Many Christians are terrified about what these locusts will bring, but their power to torment is only over those who don't have God's seal on them. Those poor unfortunates will beg for death. Such will be their suffering, but death will not come to them. One woe is past, Revelation 9.14 tells us. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things as if there's not been enough misery yet. When the sixth trumpet blasts, more angels are released to kill a third of the human population and an army of 200 million brings death by fire, smoke and brimstone. And yet the survivors refuse to repent of their sorcery, their immorality or their thievery. Such stubbornness, such violence, such misery. And still John's not finished. 
there's an interlude before the seventh trumpet blast. And in Revelation 10, 1, it tells us another angel comes wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. When this angel speaks, seven thunders are released. John is only allowed to record that the thunders are, re are released and have sounded. He's forbidden to record what the thunders have said. Instead, he's given a small scroll to eat that tastes as sweet as honey. The tune's bitter in his stomach. Strange imagery. In chapter 11, John is told to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. And two witnesses are sent out to prophesy for three and a half years. They're given enormous power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. These witnesses are invincible until they finish prophesying, at which point a beast arises from the bottomless pit to kill them. Their bodies are left on display in Jerusalem for three and a half days while people celebrate their death. But after three and a half days, they come back to life, striking fear into all who see them before they're taken up bodily to heaven. When they're taken up, a great earthquake strikes Jerusalem, killing 7,000 people. Finally, the seventh angel blows his trumpet to great rejoicing in heaven. And John sees God's temple opened and the Ark of the Covenant in there. As if that's not all strange enough, we get to the halfway point, only the halfway point of Revelation. Chapter 12, where a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars, gives birth. And a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems sweeps a third of the stars out of heaven. He plants himself before the woman, ready to devour the child the moment it's born. But the child is swept up to heaven, and the woman flees into the wilderness for three and a half years. War breaks out in heaven between Michael and his angels against the dragon and his angels. But the dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, is thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then John hears Revelation 12.10, a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. If you thought that was the end of things, you'd be mistaken. For the dragon begins to pursue the woman, and she's given wings to escape. The serpent, a.k.a. the dragon, the devil, pours a river of water out of his mouth to sweep her away in the flood. But the earth comes to her aid, opening its mouth to swallow the river, from the serpent's mouth. So the dragon sets his sight instead on her offspring, the people of God, to make war on them. Still there's more. A beast rises out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. One of the heads had a mortal wound that had healed up. 
and the whole earth followed this beast and worshipped both the dragon and the beast, believing it to be invincible. The beast is allowed to blaspheme and make war on the saints and conquer them for three and a half years. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life will worship this beast. Another beast arises, this time with two horns like a lamb, but speaking like a dragon. He exercises the authority of the first beast and performs great miracles before the people of the earth, deceiving people into receiving the infamous mark of the beast on their right hand or their forehead. Chapter 14, the 144,000 make another appearance, singing a new song that no one else knows. And three angels fly over, one proclaiming an eternal gospel, one celebrating the fall of Babylon, and the third warning of punishment to fall on those who worship the beast and receive its mark. Then the harvest of the earth begins at the hand of these three angels. And this harvest is trodden down in a great winepress of the wrath of God. And blood flows out one and a half metres deep for a distance of nearly 300 kilometres. The final outpouring of God's wrath now begins. The seven angels pouring out seven bowls of plagues. As the outpouring starts, those believers who have conquered the beast begin to sing Revelation 15.3, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The first bowl, though, contains painful sores for those who worship the beast. The next bowl causes the sea to turn to blood and everything in it to die. The third bowl is poured out, causing the rivers and springs to turn to blood. So those who have shed the blood of the saints would get blood to drink in return. The fourth bowl makes the sun burn with such intensity that they're scorched by the heat, causing them to curse God but still not repent. Then darkness comes upon the earth with the fifth bowl and people gnaw their tongues in anguish, but still curse God in rebellion. The sixth bowl makes the great Euphrates River dry up and three unclean spirits come out of the mouths of the dragon and the beast, three demons who perform great miracles, assembling the kings of the earth for the great battle of Armageddon. When the seventh angel pours out his bowl in the air, there's lightning, thunder and earthquakes that cause cities everywhere to collapse. And 50 kilogram hailstones fall from heaven. And yet even though the people seem to know that all these curses come from God, they still rebel and they still curse him and they still refuse to repent. Such is the hardness of the human heart unless the Lord give us a heart of flesh. Chapter 17 tells us, uh, tells us of another woman, this one, a harlot, the mother of prostitutes, figuratively speaking, Babylon the Great, 
and she rides on a scarlet beast with seven heads and ten horns and covered with blasphemous names. This woman is so evil, she is drunk on the blood of the saints. The seven heads represent seven mountains, but they also represent seven kings. The ten horns represent ten kings who will come to make war against the Lamb. Then the ten kings and the beast will turn on the prostitute to destroy her. Chapter 18. We see a glorious angel announces the fall of the prostitute Babylon the Great and the punishment she is about to endure. But all who grew rich and fat of her will mourn her downfall. In contrast, the saints, the apostles and the prophets will rejoice that God's executed judgment on her. Still, the battles haven't finished, though. Chapter 19 is a brief interlude where there's great joy in heaven. A vast multitude singing, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. And they continue to sing, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then another horse, this one, a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True, who comes to judge and make war against his enemies. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, And the name by which he is called is the word of God. He comes to strike down the nations and to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. For those who haven't been able to keep up, this is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He captures the beast and the false prophet, those deceivers, and throws them alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. He slays all those with the mark of the beast and the birds gorge themselves on the flesh. Then an angel comes down, chapter 20, from heaven to chain up the dragon, that ancient servant, serpent who is the devil and Satan, casting him into the pit for a thousand years before releasing him briefly to continue his deception. One final battle ensues when the devil is released but it comes to nothing as fire comes down from heaven to consume him and his armies. Then judgment begins before the great white throne. All whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life are thrown into the lake of fire with the devil and death and Hades. That takes us through 20 of the 22 chapters of Revelation. Strange and confusing and terrifying and fascinating, all rolled into one. As if the events described in Revelation aren't frightening enough, there's a strong warning given in the last chapter to all those who would add to it or take away from it. Do you think you know what all this means? For centuries, people have been looking at world events, including that this event is what John was talking about when he wrote such and such a verse. And for centuries, they've had to shut their collective mouths as they've been proven wrong. 
and then pretend they didn't say any such thing. This book has been a snare for those foolish enough to think they can work out a timeline to the end based on it. Time and again, God will prove them wrong. And yet the strange and confusing book is given to us as the unerring word of God. It's meant to teach us and to correct us and to train us in righteousness. What's more, a blessing is pronounced on the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and on those who hear and keep what is written for the time is near. We dare not ignore this book. It may be confusing, it may be difficult to understand, it may even be controversial, but it is precious and important. As, and we gain much nourishment for the soul just by reading it, for it's God's words. But it's also relentless in the miseries it records, as we've just seen. Whether we're, we're experiencing these miseries today is a matter for debate. But certainly we seem to be experiencing something of them, plagues and fires and floods, war, opposition, persecution, blasphemies. To greater or lesser degree, we know them all. We live amongst them every day. Could this coronavirus plague be one of the bowls of God's wrath being poured out on the earth? Maybe it is. It wouldn't surprise me to find out that it is. There certainly seems to be an increase in earthquakes and floods and droughts and mild storms, weather events, as they like to call them now. Could God be trying to get the attention of the world to let them know our days are numbered? To call us to repentance? Maybe. And that leads me to where I want to go, finally. No matter what disasters and what tragedies befall us, what plagues or wars or struggles we find ourselves in, there is a better future. If nothing else, the book of Revelation is meant to encourage us, to strengthen us in the midst of those trials. In fact, I think understanding that simple truth about this book is much more important than working out which wild bowl of wrath we're living through today. Revelation encourages, by turning, encourages us by turning our attention to the future. It's amazing what we humans can tolerate and even enjoy when we have a goal, when we have something to look forward to. Athletes are the, are the obvious example, of course. An athlete will endure immense pain, discomfort, monotony and pressure because he's, he has his eyes fixed on a prize sometime in the future. Even us ordinary folk will gladly submit to the rigours of the gym to get in shape for summer or the discipline of dieting to lose weight to fit into that wedding outfit. The point of this illustration is not to compare levels of pain and suffering, but to remind us that having something good to look forward to helps us to get through the toughest times with confidence and even with joy. The whole of the Bible is about promise and fulfilment. God made a promise to Eve in the Garden of Eden that a descendant of hers would crush the serpent's head. He promised Abraham a son in his old age. He promised the Jews a king 
and a saviour who would rescue them from oppression and bondage. These promises sustained them. Even when they wavered, which they did often, they kept returning to the promise that the Lord had made to them and they were strengthened to keep on going. So you need to know what it is you have to look forward to. You need to know what the goal is. You need to know what God has promised you. The pain is pointless without it. And Revelation tells us what that promise is. Before I get to it, you know, we're not the only ones who are helped by fixing our eye on a goal, on a promise. Even Jesus looked to the future to help him to stay on course, to stay, stay focused, to stay strong. Hebrews 12.2 tells us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross. And he didn't just endure the cross to prove he was better or tougher or more determined than other people. He endured the suffering for the joy that was set before him. If Jesus Christ, the God-man, was helped by looking to the finish line, I'm confident we will be too. That's why John's vision in Revelation doesn't just finish with the final battle that Jesus wins decisively. It goes on to tell us what comes after that battle. And what comes after it is indescribably glorious. If you're in Revelation 21, let's read from the first verse. And this is the one I want us to focus on. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Our surfers and fishermen amongst us might not think that's such good news. But John goes on to say, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Friends, the things written in this book will come to pass in some way or another. Maybe some have already come to pass in history. Certainly some await a future time consummation. For the day is coming. Who knows how long before it arrives, but it is coming. When we won't have to be confused anymore about all the strange stuff that's in here. And the day is coming when we won't have to worry about this crazy world we live in, about viruses 
about bushfires, about earthquakes, about death, about separation. One day the Lord will provide a new heaven and a new earth for us to live in. And we will have the delight of his presence with us every day. No more pain, no more death, no more mourning, no more confusion, no more doubt, no more anxiety. We can't avoid living in this world today. And I'm not advocating that we try to withdraw from the world. In fact, I would contend that God has put us in this world at precisely this time for a purpose. We're not here today by accident. But if and when we get overwhelmed by what's going on in the world around us, then we need to fix our eyes on and we need to set our course for this promised perfect world. We all know this world's broken. We all know our bodies are breaking down more and more with every passing year. Now, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ have something that will never be taken away from us. As Paul puts it, we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That light will never be extinguished no matter what goes on around us. The Lord himself will make sure it keeps on shining. Paul goes on to say there, we have this treasure in jars of clay. And certainly these bodies feel like jars of clay. They break down physically. They betray us emotionally. We wrestle spiritually. It's a treasure in jars of clay. It's to show you that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, Paul says, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, light and momentary affliction. Paul went through suffering that we can't even comprehend and he calls it a light and momentary affliction because he had his eye on a prize, on a goal, on a new heaven and a new earth. This light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, not to this world, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. This world won't last. But the things that are unseen are eternal. What will the new heavens and the new earth be like? I can't say for sure. But if you can imagine what the beauty of the Garden of Eden must have been, lush and green and fertile and tranquil and beautiful, it will be like that and more. God has been working out his plan of salvation through history to restore the original perfection of his creation. 
Whatever it will be like, I'm certain the grass will be greener. The sky will be bluer. The mountains more majestic. The weather ideal. It will truly be beautiful one day, perfect the next. (laughs) If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, take a look around you. What is there in this world that you can count on to keep you safe, to keep you secure, to give you hope? Nothing. The last 12 months should have stripped away any delusion you had that this world will look after you or even that you're in control of your own life. Instead, I call on you to take seriously the claims of Jesus Christ to be the only one who you can trust the only one who will keep you and protect you to your dying breath. If you'll do that now, if you will admit you can't make this life work the way you know it should, and if you'll call out to him for his grace and mercy instead, he will grant you the same privileges and the same hope that he has given to those of us who have already trusted in him. And that hope, that certainty, is that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and that we'll live there in eternal security and peace with him. We can speculate for hours on end about what all the crazy visions in Revelation mean, but that's not the point of the book. The book is all about the triumph of good over evil, about every enemy being defeated and all opposition being crushed. And the conqueror, Jesus Christ, receives the glory that is due to him. The point of it all is to encourage us, to encourage us to stand strong and to stay faithful, to finish the race. It is decidedly not to send us off on wild goose chase theories about end times. Can I encourage you then as we prepare to take communion, if you haven't uh, got yourself a cup of the bread and the juice, we prepare to take communion together as we move into this new year. I encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus, to look to the goal, to look to the ultimate prize, to not lose heart. Thanks, Marilyn. Paul wrote when he was referring to communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about the coming, the coming again of Jesus Christ, that we proclaim his death until he returns. He is returning. And when he returns, there will be a new heaven and a new earth the former things will be passed away. We have that as a promise. And God does not break his promises. So one of my, my favourite Christian singers sings, that if God should break his promise, the stars would break faith with the sky. It cannot happen. He has promised to comfort, to sustain, and to deliver us to a new heaven 
and the new earth. As you take the bread and the juice now, I encourage you to fix your focus on that. Lord, we have something to look forward to. Lord, we have a promise that is unbreakable. As we take this bread and this juice, Lord, we're reminded that that promise is sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we look with hope, with joy, with expectancy towards that day when we will see him face to face, we will dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Behold the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. And Lord, we, we put our trust afresh in Jesus Christ today. Let's see. Already, let's drink to seal that promise to ourselves. It's juice that represents the blood of Jesus Christ. Truly, as we sang earlier, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy are you, Jesus Christ. There is none like you, Lord. And we cast ourselves on your mercy, your grace, and your mighty arm to sustain us. No matter what this world throws at us this year, Lord, we will march through as conquerors. For, Lord, you make us such as we put our trust in you. Help us, Holy Spirit, to always keep our eyes fixed on that prize, Jesus Christ, salvation, new heavens, new earth, eternal life. Hunger satisfied, thirst quenched, and life overflowing. Thank you for all of these things that you have promised, for all of these things you have revealed to us in your word. And would you nourish our souls by them, Lord? In the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.